0: Yes I wrote a study which was why and how capitalism needs to be reformed which was a very controversial study but but it's an obvious fact that if it's not benefiting the majority of the people okay then just by its metrics of success it's not a it's not going to be successful but these types of changes some have to be reformed because the country or the world as a whole has more resources than it ever had it has more intelligence than it ever had but it has a choice is it going to go to war or is it and, and which will make things worse than ever or is it going to try to find a way together to make that better whole that's the choice i think we face
1: It's my pleasure and privilege to welcome to the podcast one of the greatest investors of all time, that's no exaggeration to say, Uh, and number one New York Times bestselling author, including author of the extraordinary new book, Principles for Dealing with a Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail, Ray Dalio, the head of Bridgewater, the biggest hedge fund in the world joins us. Thank you so much for being here, Ray.
0: Thank you for the opportunity to talk with you and your audience.
1: You kidding, Ray? I mean, I've admired you for a long time. And my my first question for you is, why the heck are you doing this? Which is what I mean by by this is, like, you're putting your thoughts and ideas out there. Uh, You know, a lot of people, like, in your line of work, um, I I suppose, and even in your book, you say, it's like, hey, some of the things I'm putting out there, some people are, are, you know, are going to be reactive to, uh, and you talk about how polarized our climate is, like, why is it so important for you to get these ideas out there?
0: Well, I'm at a stage in my life, you know, I'm, I'm 72 years old, and the most important thing I could do is pass along whatever I have that's of value. So, you know, the main thing I feel a natural pull to is passing along some of the principles that helped me and, um, and then talking about these issues. And then I'm going to then go quiet probably after i put out my next book which is economic investment principles if we don't talk about these things these very important things i worry um because there are things that are dangerous that are going on that we can have an influence on so i worry so what should i do just be quiet and be to myself i I think this is a moment to talk about them so that's why i also appreciate you and being able to have this conversation.
1: Well, really grateful for your incredible uh, work with this book, which I really want everyone to read. Uh, I think it helps shed light on a lot of the forces that that people feel like uh, are buffeting Americans. And number one right now, on top of everyone's mind is inflation. And, and the book kind of predates this sort of inflation surge. Um, but you talk about how there's this mega, there are three mega cycles you talk about in the book. There's like the money credit cycle, uh, where the money supply goes up, um, and inflation becomes a growing problem. And then there's this internal order disorder uh, cycle, which we'll talk about a little bit, and then the external order disorder cycle. Now that we're in this particular bind, like, what do you foresee for uh, the Fed right now in terms of, trying to address inflation and get it under control. You write admiringly about Paul Volcker in the 70s that you actually were friendly with him or, or worked with him. Um, I feel like the Fed today has a tougher task ahead of them than even faced Volcker in the 70s. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, let me let me put it in context. Um, one of the things that I learned in my life is that things that surprise me often never happened in my lifetime before and that I needed to study them going back in in, in 1971. On August 15th, when I'm clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and following these things between in the year between graduating college and uh, going to graduate school, Richard Nixon uh, defaults on the United States' debt. Then, Then gold was money and I was shocked. I thought a crisis, wow, you're not gonna get the gold money as we know it ends. And I walked onto the floor of the stock exchange and rather than falling a lot, which I thought would happen, it went up a lot. And that's because I never was through one of those, one of those devaluations and so on. And so I started studying in history and I found out the same thing happened on March 3rd, 1933. Roosevelt did the exact same thing for the exact same reason leading to the exact same result. And so studying past periods that didn't happen in my lifetime, like we haven't been through a war before, and we haven't been through uh, a civil war, we haven't been in the circumstances. So the three big things that are happening in our lifetimes that we have not been through before, are uh, the creation of an enormous amount of debt, and printing of money to monetize the debt. That's number one. And so we'll talk about inflation and where we are in that cycle. But I, I and I'm a, I'm like a mechanic. I'm not ideological. I'm just like what are the cause effect relationships? How does that dy- dynamic work mechanistically? But it produces uh, inflation. Uh, the second, but very interrelated to this, um, is the large internal conflicts that we are having: populism of the left and populism of the right. Um, and and values differences that is producing a conflict. Populism means that um, some representative who will fight for me on my cause against the other side. That means not, not compromise, not be in the middle, but to fight to win at all costs. And when we have that populism brought about also by the largest wealth gap differences, largest opportunity gap differences, and so on. That type of conflict, I have never seen in my life. But that also happened in the 1930 to 45 period. And so I needed to go back and and study that over time. And then the third is the great power conflict, right? When 1945, when this world order began, Um, as all world orders, there's a war, there's a dominant power, the dominant power sets the rules. And when the dominant power sets the rules, uh, then you have a period of uh, peace and prosperity. Um, And so uh, the United States in 1945, had 80% of the world's money, it had half of world GDP, it had a monopoly on the uh, military power. And so we came into the American world order. That gap, that power gap, has shrunk to be approximately equal with the other side, and we're having a great power conflict. So you have to go back to that period of time. And I've seen that period of time happen repeatedly. When these three things happen repeatedly, it's a very dangerous set of circumstances. So we are in a position on the financial one to be in a position where you you cannot raise living standards by raising money and credit. In other words, if you increase money, then the value of money is going to go down. And one man's debts are another man's assets. And so uh, when they get negative returns by holding a debt asset, they're going to sell that debt asset, and that produces a, uh, a problem. And that hap- that's over a period of time. And so the Romans, for example, put um, less gold into gold coins. And so you saw it in its way, and that certainly produces kind of the inflation, because you can't raise living standards by printing more money. So we have that going on. That was really the essence of your first question. And so there's that dynamic of uh, where is a storehold of wealth? The purpose of a, com- a currency is two purposes, a medium of exchange and a storehold of wealth. A storehold of wealth means you you buy its its debt and its assets, and you can save in it. And people believe that cash is a safe investment, but they're seeing that what happens is it's losing buying power, and it will lose buying power. So they start to realize it's not a safe investment. Uh, inflation over the last year, about 8%. Interest rates were, were nothing. And so there was an 8% change in buying power. That kinds of changes and sort of reinforces the inflation cycle.
1: So one of the fascinating arguments you make in your book um is you go through the various alternatives to the dollar as a world reserve currency. So here's the, the way most people understand it. The US is printing a lot of money um, because it's running significant deficits. Uh it owes now um 30 trillion plus or something along those lines. Um, but the world doesn't have much of a choice because where else you're gonna put yeah, your investment or savings. The eurozone too small. Uh, the Deutschmark, the pound. <laughs> I, I, I pound. The pound probably doesn't even exist anymore. It's an right?
0: ugly contest.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like so. So the U.S. looks at it and is like, "Hey, like, what are you gonna do?" You know, it's like the it's the U.S. dollar or nothing. Um, and you make an argument that that's not quite how it works.
0: Right. That I think we pay too much attention to one currency in relationship to another currency, and not enough attention to the fact that those aren't the choices. It's a choice for transactions, but it's not a choice for storehold of wealth. So if you're holding European euros and euro-denominated debt, and you're getting a negative interest rate or thereabouts, and the same is true in Japan, and you're not making up with inflation, none of those are good. It's a, uh, And like in the 30s, they all depreciated, they all went down in relationship to goods and services and other asset prices. So what you see is all the currencies uh, along those lines are sort of tied to each other, and they're bad storeholds of wealth, and that's why you see moves to other assets. It pays to borrow, and, uh, or if not borrow, but put your money into um, assets that maintain buying power. So you, you see it happen in, in all the different ways. So uh, look at whether what you're holding in the form of that uh, cash denominated, and that'll be a debt instrument, that's how you hold a currency in order to have a storehold of wealth, look at its real returns.
1: Yeah, and you use gold in your book uh, as a standard of reference, which is something that most people are familiar with. One question that that did pop into my mind when I was reading your book was whether the phenomena you're describing um, are tied to the rise of crypto over like the, this last period of time, because it, it seems like people have been casting about for, in some ways, alternative to fiat currencies that aren't gold. Uh, is is that something that, uh, that you think is an outgrowth of, of what you're describing?
0: It, it has the form together um, of what is money. I mean, it's Genesis. What is money? And how can we not only digitalize it which makes it some extent efficient but also the real questions can it maintain value so it will not be depreciated by central banks that's a that's that's a key thing can it be transferred used all around the world accepted for purchases and sales all around the world then it has to do with issues like can it be private Um, There's a saying in Gold's case, which is, it's the only uh, financial asset that you can own um, that is private and you can move around that um, isn't dependent on somebody paying you money, paying you something, so as a medium of exchange. So uh, crypto, those in a fiat world, uh, naturally becomes an alternative uh, consideration, and the fact that it's gone on uh, something like Bitcoin, I guess about 11 years, and it, and it hasn't been hacked, and it you know is working in that way has its particular appeal. It has big issues. It's not a it's not a private asset. Uh, it is um, easily outlawed. It 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 doesn't constitute a high enough percentage of wealth. It um, not right now, for example, Bitcoin's worth maybe. billion or so, and which makes it a small asset by comparison to a lot of things like Microsoft is worth more than um, crypto is. And so it's not, it hasn't reached those uh, particular stages. I think that um, people are uh, grappling for what the new money will be in this environment. Um, And I think uh, we, we don't know yet what the new money is. I think we're going to see different countries put out their different versions of digital currencies, and then there will be private assets and and gold will play a role. The important thing is we have entered an era um, which will carry us through the next number of years of what is the money that is widely accepted uh, as a medium of exchange and a viable storehold of wealth.
1: that's expressvpncom com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So as the mechanic, and you've studied these patterns over and over again, For for me, the biggest Analog to what we're going through right now is the 70s. And obviously, you know, no one has a crystal ball, though, to the extent that anyone has a crystal ball, I, sus- I suspect yours is better than um, most anyone's. <laughs> but, but, like, h- how do you see this inflation, interest rate, asset price tension playing out? I feel like the Fed's going to have no choice but to increase interest rates. And I'm not sure what happens next.
0: The Fed understands, and not central banks know, that when uh, inflation is undesirably high, uh, undesirably high, and the economy is relatively strong. You put on the brakes, and that when the reverse is the case, you put on the gas. And they don't understand, I think, monetary inflation enough. Um, what has happened is that because um, they put on the gas so much, have allowed interest rates to be so low as i say in many cases negative interest rates and they've made liquidity so abundant that not only didn't you have to pay interest on your debt um, but you didn't have to pay principal on your debt because they would have interest only loans and they would have um, low Covenants, like it's easy to not meet your debt requirement. Companies borrow, individuals borrow, interest only loans. And when there's no interest rate, they basically mean the stuff is free. You can buy houses, you can buy all sorts of things on that basis. And the world has adapted to that. And they did that at a very low real interest rate, a very low interest rate relative to inflation. And then they printed a lot more of that money and so on. And so inflation is going up. So mechanistically, what that means is now we have a lot more debt and we have an economy and a markets, financial markets, that the pricing is structured based on those very low interest rates and that amount of liquidity. So when you go through the calculations, when I go through the calculations, and I I figure um, a high enough level of interest rate to provide a decent real return is for a holder of the debt, is much too high of an interest rate for the markets and the economy. But you're gonna have an inflation rate that's above the interest rates and and that's not gonna be desirable, so investors want to sell that. And you could see it as interest rates rise, you can see its effects on markets. You could see the effects on the capital markets. Uh, So you see the stock market going down while the bond market is going down. And that means most everything that people own practically are going down practically, Um, because most people are in stocks and bonds, that kind of thing. The Fed's trade-off is going to be very difficult. Uh, Right now, they have a very restrictive monetary policy plan I judge that by the supply and the demand for credit. So the federal government is going to run large deficits. So that means they will have to sell debt. They'll sell treasury bills and bonds. The Federal Reserve is planning to sell $1.1 trillion of debt also. Private investors are inclined, pension funds and so on. They're losing money. While there's inflation, so they're losing buying power, they're selling. And there's a selling imbalance. And that selling imbalance means because it has to balance with the buyers, that means a contraction in private credit, which means a recession. And so as I look through this, we're in a tightening phase where it's beginning to bite, but it's not really, it's barely begun because the actual rises in short rates have barely begun it started the other things are r- rising and that trade-off between growth and inflation is going to be very difficult and that's why I believe that we've entered a period of in, of stagflation quite like the 1970s and then we can't look at it alone we have to look at it in light of the two other big forces in other words the internal conflict force. We don't have enough money and we don't have enough real money. We have plenty of fiat money because we could print it, but you don't have enough real money. And everybody says we need to, um, spend money on this thing and that. And I, and I don't even disagree with that. When I look at the social conditions and the infrastructure and I look at, okay, uh, Ukraine, and do we need to be rebuild the Ukraine? Do we need to have greater military expenditures? Do we need to have these things? but we don't ask how much money do we have to spend. And so because of the nature of that, even just the costliness, we need to take care of the environment, but it's gonna be expensive when we take care of the environment because um, we haven't yet fully developed the technologies that are fully cost effective in order to do that. So I think that that's the mechanical description of of where we are in a political environment. So as we have inflation, um, that's gonna be a big political thing. And it's gonna cause greater polarity. There's a risk that neither side accepts losing um, because of the populism. And you put more financial strain and things get worse. Conditions are likely to be um, significantly worse, for example, in 2024 than they are now. Just take a normal economic cycle and where you are. And then we have the external conflict thing. Yeah, they're all tied together and it, it paints a difficult picture. I think the most important thing is how we are with each other through these types of things. Whether we're fighting with each other or, you know, the smart middle where, you know, you work together and you bring the country together not to fight because history has shown we have to bring up, make our country strong.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. You had a sentence in your book that I thought was maybe the strongest sentence I'd ever seen from a business leader that uh, I was not aware of until I read your, your book in full, which was you said, that you think that the odds of America slipping into a civil war type scenario over the next 10 years is around 30%. And you characterize that as like not that high a risk. I feel like that should be A1 headline news <laughs> everywhere. And by the way, I'm with you, like I I agree with you. Here's what I
0: think is happening and and probably will happen. The populism of the left and the right uh, are individuals who will are are fighters for those constituencies. And uh, there are very different values, very different approaches. What that means is that there's little compromise, and there's much greater extremism, very much like happened in Europe. Four Major democracies in the 1930 to 45 period had this type of internal conflict that ended up their parliaments, their uh, legislatures choosing to have autocracies, that they went to autocracies uh, Germany, Italy, uh, Japan, and Spain. And if you study history, you see it was the same in the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, which are all sort of civil wars. You lose the middle. And because you have to say, Andrew, you got to get on one side or another and fight when the causes that people are behind are more important to them than the system. The system is in jeopardy. And so you see just even uh, people moving from place to place in terms of where they think it's more uh, sympathetic to their way of being and what they're like you know new york chicago uh san francisco california moves to texas and so on and you're seeing um then um not a not as much respect for the constitution and the legal system because you have a win at all cost so for example if you have the dispute between um let's say disney and um the florida governor in the past there would have been almost mutual respect for different points of view, but what you now get back is you get back to a power conflict. Well, you know, what would the odds put? I'll ask you what you think the odds are uh, that, for example, in the next presidential election, that neither side accepts losing. You know, I'd say "Mm, almost too close to call. Um, and, And what is the possibility that states do not follow the directions of the Supreme Court? decisions because the Supreme Court decisions can be viewed by one side as a political decision made by the other Supreme Court and how do we get around that or whatever just like sanctuary cities in other words, I will not follow that rule and that and so now you start to have a breakdown of um, the system and you have power politics, Determining things, so I think that that kind of uh, civil war is relatively likely.
1: I, I I don't disagree with you at all, Ray. I and mean, anyone who listens to me knows that I've been trying to sound an alarm on, on this. So one of the things you say in your book is that uh, you think one way out of this is a strong peacemaker, and we pray for them. <laughs> uh, and but you say that that's not something that uh, generally happens. Uh, that that generally the other thing happens. Um, what what I'm trying to do, have you seen any of uh, Catherine Geller, Michael's or Michael Porter's work on political incentives? Because one of the things that's driving our polarization is that we have these party primaries that disproportionately empower the most extreme 10% of, of partisan voters. So one thing we're trying to do is change the mechanics of the, our election so that it's not just the most extreme uh, hyper-partisans choosing our leaders and then reelecting them. Right now, you have of Americans happy with Congress, which is very, very low, Uh, but the re-election rate for individual members is 94%, which is astronomically high. But your your book talks about the increase in polarization as a precursor to some of these very negative things happening. And there are other societies that have democracies that have more than two parties. (laughs) That's actually the norm in most of of the world. And so what, what we're trying to do at Forward is change the mechanics so that you can have more points of view emerge and then start a positive unifying third party force that represents the reasonable middle uh, that can draw energy and resources and also put pressure on both of the parties to compromise. Uh, I don't know if this is something that you've dug into and explored either in terms of the mechanics of why uh, it seems like we're getting uh, more extreme polarized leadership um, or if there have been other countries that have uh, reformed their way out
0: so I I I think we're uh completely in agreement. let and g- just going back to the mechanics. I, I think it has to do with fear. I hope that we can have understand what the context, what what it means to have the type of civil war, the what is the probability and what does that mean? Um like I, I have a principle. If you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good rule of life. If you worry, you'll take care of the thing you're worrying about, and you can worry less. And and if you don't, then probably it'll kill you. The extremism, which um has problems in terms of destroying a system, is a terrible path. Anybody who's gone through this. And I, I mean it domestically as well as internationally. But the number one thing. Is that the population has got to want that. And we have, and in our two party system, we have a problem because, um, uh, let's say, uh, there's about 30% of the population I, I would define as being uh, rather uh, extreme right, and maybe something like 15% of the population being extreme left. But as a percentage of their uh, own parties, they're relatively high. And they're gathering more as they as the fight approaches, and so they become then dominant, and you have that particular result. But the power of the middle, if you can, and and the power of 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 also compromise, if you can bring that about, uh, is, enor- is enormous because still the majority of people are not in those two. We're, we're, we're talking about 45% of the population maybe is is fairly extreme and, and opposite ends, um, but the majority still aren't there. And if the majority had, they have to be smart enough to know how to increase the size of the pie and divide the pie well to pre- produce equal opportunity and, and equal and some element of sharing it to get the balance right.
1: You wrote a number of pieces in 2018 and 2019 about how we need to try and reform the economy or reform capitalism, capitalism so that it works for more people. And one of the stats that you cited was a stat that I cited too on the trail, which was that the odds of American children doing better than their parents uh, are down to, let's say, 50-50 and dropping, which is one of the things that's driving people to anger, frustration. I mean, it's very fundamental. You're a parent, I'm a parent. If you felt like your kids are going to do worse than you, then you start looking around being like, okay, what the heck is is going wrong?
0: Yes, I wrote a study which was why and how capitalism needs to be reformed, which was a very controversial study, but, but it's an obvious fact that if it's not benefiting the majority of the people, okay, then just by its metrics of success, it's not a, it's not gonna be successful. Yeah. And there are, and a reformed doesn't mean gone away with. It means changing certain things that means it works better, keeping capitalism and so on. Capitalists tend to be people who um, have new ideas, and if you give them capital, and they can invent really good things and improve it. It, You know, it's a wonderful system. It's been proven by everybody. It's been adopted by the Chinese, Deng Xiaoping, to make a better uh, system. But it has to work in a way where it produces the outcomes that you want. The middle. The problem is capitalists are, are better able of increasing the pie, but they don't know how to divide the pie well. They don't have to share it well. And socialists um, don't know how to make it as good a pie, but they divide it well. So I think you need the bipartisan. Like if I was president of the United States, which, by the way, I will never be. I'm not right. But I would want to have a bipartisan <laughs> cabinet. OK, I'd put a bipartisan cabinet. And I would have the equivalent to a Manhattan Project to think about what reforms need to be made to achieve that. Uh, uh, In other words, of the left, of the right, smart, capable, mechanical, least savvy individuals who know about engineering. And there will have to be structural changes. For example, let's say education. Uh, The Constitution uh, makes... Um, education, a state uh, issue, which then is in most states become the local tax district issue. I know this well because my wife um, and and I to some extent, but her really works in the worst school districts in Connecticut. Uh, I'll give you a stock shocking statistic. In Connecticut, which is one of the richest states in the country, 22 percent of the high school students are either disengaged or disconnected. Disengaged means that their absentee rate is greater than 25 percent. They're failing class. Oh, oh, my gosh. And disconnected means that they don't know where they are because they dropped out of school. Twenty two percent of the high school students are That's failing terrible. high That's school. Terrible. Now, there's a cycle there. They're in a poor district. They're not they don't have parents who adequately take care of them and so on. The state of Connecticut spends six hundred billion dollars, a million dollars a year on um, incarcerations because there's that. So. The notion, you know, like there's no better investment than quality education, but these types of changes, some have to be reformed. Maybe it requires some constitutional amendments, but it certainly means working together because the country or the world as a whole has more resources than it ever had. It has more intelligence than it ever had, but it has a choice. Is it going to go to war or is it, and, and which will make things worse than ever? Or is it going to try to find a way together to make that better whole? That's the choice I think we face.
1: I urge anyone to read Ray's piece on how to um, reform and restore capitalism, because I agree with it entirely. If Productivity is to work, it has to benefit the population broadly. And do we have that right now? And you ask that sort of rhetorically, but it's clear everyone knows we don't. <laughs> you know that, 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 Like productivity is hitting certain people and like not benefiting others.
0: Yeah, I uh, the reason I use measurements is I want to be totally objective and I want to be totally mechanical. If this move this lever, this works this way. And so you could see it in those pieces in the books. Um, by the way, I, um, besides my book, I did a um, uh, about a 40 minute video, uh, animated video uh, called The Changing World Order. I put it out a little over a month ago and it's got uh, 13 million viewers. People like it. It's a quick and easy way.
1: Oh, we'll getting- link to it for uh, sure. Uh, we, we know a lot of people uh, prefer to get their information that way. We got to give it to them in every way possible book podcast, animated video, just <laughs> to try and lead people to it. Um, so Ray, you wrote that piece about reforming capitalism in uh, 2018 or 2019. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I think it was 18, but maybe 19.
1: Yeah, I think it was 18 as well. I remember being struck by it. I was just starting my presidential run. And I was like, wow. And you said we should declare a national emergency slash Manhattan Project around why the economy is not working for most people.
0: And the reason I the reason I wrote it was at 2016, for the first time, we had a populist being elected, populist of the right. And I studied populism. And then I decided I would study it, like, let me diagnose what's going on. And I did it by quintiles, top 20%, next 20%. And I wanted to look what the circumstances were for the majority of people, so the bottom 60%. And and when I saw that, I got it. I mean, it was clear. Okay, it's not working for the majority of of people.
1: Yeah, and, and you say too that uh, our socioeconomic mobility has dropped like a stone. Where you imagine that this is a country where you can move between quintiles, and it, it really hasn't been true for a while.
0: And it's an engineer. I view it as an engineering problem, right? So because profitability has a cycle that doesn't um, necessarily achieve the goal fully. Uh, It's wonderful things about it, but at the same time, uh, capitalism, as it creates big differences, those those reinforce each other. So um, if you have a lot of money, your kids get a good education. If you don't, and you're poor in poverty, they don't get a good education. Um, or you have more power, or those things. And also, ironically, you get more indebted. The country becomes more indebted. And and if you look at the assets and liabilities, if, if you're richer, you can borrow money. And that's why I like to support microfinance. But anyway, if you're richer, you can borrow money. And you own stocks and bonds. And when the Federal Reserve buy stocks and bonds for monetary policy purposes, you get more rich relative to others. And so there are engineering reasons that are um, that exist. And if they were modified, um, it would improve incentives, it would improve productivity. People think it's just a wealth transfer. No, no, no. it's a productivity transfer
1: yes yeah, so it's actually just trying to improve the engineering so my my question for you is this and this is where where I, I think we are right but so you you raise your hand and in my opinion very uh iconoclastically say hey look the american economy is not working for the bottom 60% this is going to lead to very negative things based upon like history and cycles and every, every, what every other society has gone through when they've been in this position we need to move in this direction Imagine a bipartisan government and cabinet coming together to implement these things. Um, the the problem I see is that right now, if either party is in power, their incentives are not to work with the other side because of just the way the system is set up. Again, if you compromise with the other side, then you'll likely pay a price at the polls and your job security will go down. So the, the vision you have is a vision I share very deeply, uh, and we need to try and get the country there as quickly as we can. Um, my feeling is that the only way to get there is going to be to try and uh, reform or, frankly, disrupt the current two-party system. There are a couple of ways to do that, and I'm, I'm going to throw something out there. I, I sense that uh, you're friendly with Mark Cuban, so I, I've been uh, bugging Mark to run for president in, in 24. Uh, he's been demurring, just like you did, you know, 15 minutes ago. <laughs> but that if there was like a Mark Cuban type figure that runs for office, like I think he wins. Um, Because if you wind up with like a Trump-Biden rematch, 58% of Americans want an alternative to that. Um, So they'll just look around saying like, is there an alternative? And then if you had like a credible, independent figure, then uh, you could imagine a Cuban type get there and then he'd appoint a bipartisan cabinet, and then there'd there'd be a chance to accomplish what you laid out. I guess I have two questions. Number one, what was the result you saw from your making that case? Like, uh, and I know you've been investing through your personal philanthropy in, uh, you know, in Connecticut. Um, you know, with, with, with your wife in various ways. Um, and, and the second thing is I have made the diagnosis that our current two-party system is actually becoming less and less prone to, to some form of uh, compromise and collaboration like you prescribe. Like I believe our only way to get there would be some kind of political realignment, reorientation. Uh, you know, I've started a third party to try and help us get there. We're like building state chapters and the rest of it. Um like, what do you see as like the like a path to the vision that you laid out uh, in, in 2018?,
0: uh, so first of all, i I, I completely agree with you, um, meaning that there has to be a political alignment of people who are in the middle of who and they are. Um, I see it. Um, that Republicans and Democrats are more alike than they are with the members of the party who are more extreme. Yeah, agree. And so the question is whether it should be a third political party, um, or it should be a bringing together those moderates in some other form um, that has them working together within their existing parties, but working together closely. And I don't know the relative pros and cons of that. It would seem off the top of my view as very, as it might be difficult to have somebody says, I'm stepping away as being a Democrat or a Republican, and I'm entering the party of the middle. But on the other hand, once they've made that choice, um, that helps to create a cohesiveness and a coordination that makes that go better. I know that in a presidential election, it's a very long shot because of the nature of the political um, system. I spoke with Mike Bloomberg about this because um, uh, he would have been a logical candidate. But I don't think it's very difficult and I think it would be very powerful at other levels because it doesn't, as long as we abide by the rules, it doesn't take many to determine how things go because each of the other sides, um, I mean, like right now, it's one or two senators, um, determines, you know, how things go. Well, you have a, 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 a middle that constitutes a stronger middle, and as long as the rule of law and the constitution is followed, it can make the tipping point, and it could be the most powerful party, even without having, you know, the in many ways, the largest number of people or the biggest budget and so on. So it seems uh, conceivable, but I'm not an expert on that at that level. I'm just an agreeing uh, agreeing that uh, we need something like that.
1: Uh yeah, we, we need to get to what you're recommending in terms of uh, just getting down to brass tacks and saying, okay, like how do we get this engine working uh, for, for more people?
0: I think we have a similar issue internationally.
1: Yeah, yeah. And talk about the external disorder cycle.
0: You know, if you haven't studied like the 1930s leading to the war or periods like that, then you don't understand how wars happen and you don't understand how this is playing out in the way that it's played out many, many times. For example, sanctions. That, that economic warfare, you know, and the acceleration in those things have always preceded military warfare because, um, like in Japan, um, the United States froze uh, Japanese assets and um, and uh, did embargo to uh, curtail their oil imports. And, and then that put them in a position where they reacted when we had Pearl Harbor and then we have the wars. You need to understand it, not just because it's history, but you need to understand it because how you navigate it. You may not be able to change the world, okay? We think, what should we do to change the world to solve the problems? Well, we may not be able to, but you still should understand what does it mean for you personally? How do you personally navigate it? And, and what are the classic patterns? You know, For example, you could have foreign exchange controls. We talked about the depreciation of the value of money. What, what, how does one save in that kind of environment? How do we know it's coming? What do I mean? I think that we're at a juncture now um, that the sides are developing, both sides the allied, like the allied and the access power kind of thing. I think both sides would benefit from putting the number one priority is that they don't have um, a terrible war.
1: Yeah, I mean, that seems self-evident to all of us, though, in your book, you talk very, very uh, convincingly about the forces that tend to lead great powers to war. And that right now, uh, the U.S. is in relative decline. China is in relative ascent, uh, and that if there is going to be a conflict, uh, it it may break out uh, between the U.S. and China with Taiwan as a potential flashpoint.
0: And China and Russia having being more on the same side, and, and then other countries, we're seeing it now uh, develop in 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 that particular way. Um, however, all countries and all leaders. Should know that um, how terrible wars are. The interesting thing about history, you 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 know, we we never experienced what our parents experienced or what the prior generation experienced. So we that's why we never learn. And all people who were the most ardent about let's go in there and fight and win. um, Everybody regretted wars because of how terrible they were. And that's also one of the reasons that um, bad war period led to relatively extensive periods of peace because nobody wanted to go, they learned that lesson. That as the number one priority. In other words, you can have competitions between systems, but you you, you just can't cross the line. You have to know that line and you, and you and you have the rules of the game assuring that you don't cross that line. Beyond that, the next thing is how do you become strong? Just be don't don't become a declining power because a strong power. What does that mean? E- educate your children well. Be civil with each other. Um, uh, earn more than you spend. You know, these basic things. What, is it, what does strong mean? And so that's one of the reasons that bad economic conditions not only cause internal conflict, they cause a nationalism, they cause a um, a uh, populism that also causes International wars, when there's comparability in powers. And so to be um equally mindful of the need to be to get through that and by putting that as the number one. Now, of course, I'm talking to policymakers, but then also individuals who may not be able to shape it, to understand these things. That's how and how to navigate it. That's that's very, very important to me. How do you save? How do you, where do you live? Who do you associate with? Those kinds of things are individual decisions that could be made to make um, even whatever might happen better.
1: You, you, you talk about America needing a strong peacemaker to avoid some kind of internal civil war. It, you know, it seems like the same could be true about trying to navigate this uh, great power rivalry um, you you describe between the U.S. and China in particular. And in your book, you talk about how you traveled to China starting in the 80s, since before this economic boom occurred. So you kind of saw this transformation uh, as it was happening. Uh, One of your sons, the award-winning social entrepreneur, Matt Dalio, actually spent some of his childhood in schooling in China. China. So you, you've had much more direct exposure to uh, Chinese culture and leadership than probably just about anyone in the country, uh, I, I'd imagine. And your your book does talk about how they have a different approach, they tend to be more uh, long term, and even multi generational.
0: Yeah, and, and it's just not, it's not understood. And I wish that we could just Talk about it honestly and uh and understand it. The the big difference is top down versus bottom up. And there are of course many, many, many issues. But let's let's be clear. First, you have to be impressed by the um uh, what's what's been accomplished there um and consider them a force. Um and by the way, through um Deng Xiaoping's policies, uh which is uh a lot of capitalism injected into the system. Um, it, since I started going there, um, per capita income, income has increased by 26 times. The life expectancy has increased by 10 years, and the poverty rate of measured by hunger has gone from 88% to less than 1%. They've accomplished a lot.
1: Yeah, that was staggering. I saw less than 1%. And I was like, wow, uh, you know, I mean, in, it's higher in the U.S. And so they have their approach and they
0: and we have another approach. And approaches are almost like religions. Okay, so what are you going to do about it? Do you want to fight about the approach? Um, or do you want to accept the religions? You know what you should do? Number one is be strong, okay? Yours, your best approach to be as strong as you can, because if you're strong and healthy, uh, you're going to be in good shape. That's what it comes down to. Are you strong and healthy? So I think we have to focus on that and then focus still, no matter what system it is, is uh, let's not do one of those intolerable wars. You know? Let's
1: not. I agree. Uh, and, and,
0: and we're at the brink of not only the military, but you're at the brink of of what could be an, um, an economically devastating war. For example, um, if if doing business in China um, became like doing business in Russia, in other words, it's not the thing to do. It's politically not the thing to do. The economic consequences because of how our economies are linked would be mammoth. Uh, 22% of our manufactured goods imports come from China. I mean, made in China. Just imagine you don't get that. I mean, so that carries from... Um, You know, something as simple as the Nike shoes that people wear to uh, the Apple products or um, the Intel chips and and all of that. And, uh, you know, so one of the problems that that people don't like about the uh, war with Russia is the economic consequences of that war. But those are minor by comparison. This is an issue where, um, you know, like you have to think hard about how you don't want the absolutely catastrophic results, how you want to avoid those things.
1: Amen, Ray. I mean, there was so much to learn in your book, The Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and, and, and Fail. Really, I think one of the major themes of your book is that we have these massive forces that drive us in particular directions. And some of these directions are very, very nasty. They can lead to a world war, they can lead to civil war and revolution. And so the question is, how do you actually counteract those forces? How do you start countervailing forces? How do you get enough people and resource together to say, look, we do not need to follow the pattern that so many other countries have fallen uh, or great powers have fallen in terms of Uh, Combat, And and I I think that's the most fundamental challenge of our time, but it's certainly going to take real leadership. It's going to take real strength and fortitude and and courage and a vision. Uh, And you're providing a lot of those things to a lot of people.
0: Well, I think for me and like for you, I would feel terrible about myself. If I if we didn't talk about these things, people can make the choices for themselves. That's one of the great things about, you know, our country and our system. But we should talk about these things. And a lot of people um, right now are afraid to talk about the difficult things. And So I appreciate being on your show and I appreciate you talking about them. Thank you. Thank you for your time.